You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Never has a film moved so many and touched so deeply. United Artists is proud to present I Am Going to Get You Sucker, a captivating story. Yo, baby, hold it. That ain't it. It's I'm Gonna Get You Sucker. Yes. And it's the story of the brother's fight. Yes. Against Mr. Big. Yes. Well. Let's get that sucker. It's about action. Bravery. I'm a soldier, man. I've been trained for combat. Romance. Twelve inches. And danger. If y'all step on my bunny, I'll kill both of you. I'm gonna get you, sucker. Let's get that sucker. It's the good guys against the bad guys. Oh, how come their guns are so much bigger than ours? It's a phallic thing. I don't know. Good girls against the bad guys. You must got the devil in you. And it's bad guys against the bad guys. Now you boys can leave either through the window or the stairs. We gonna take the stairs, we'll take the stairs. I'm gonna get you, sucker. You know what I mean, brother? <laughs> well, actually I don't. You know, I didn't grow up around blacks. Now, I grew up in the suburbs. My dad was a lawyer, my mom was a doctor, and all my friends were white. Chump. I'm gonna get you, sucker. No. It's got passion, pumps, rhythm, and soul. Preach, brother! Who are these guys? It's my theme music. Every good hero should have some. I'm gonna get you, sucker. Don't say that. I'm gonna get you, sucker. Even if you can't say it, you got to see it. I got you, sucker. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Chris Cummins. It's great to be back. Thanks for having me on, Mike. On this special episode of the Projection Booth, we are looking at the 1988 film, I'm Gonna Get You Sucker. Written and directed and starring Keenan Ivory Wayans, the film is a parody of and something of a follow-up to exploitation films of the 1970s. The film pits Wayans as Jack Spade, along with a group of old-school heroes against Mr. Big, played by John Vernon. We're going to be discussing the end of this movie, so if you haven't seen I'm Gonna Get You Sucka and intend to, please turn us off and come on back. We will still be here. Now, Chris, when was the first time you saw I'm Gonna Get You Sucka, and what did you think? Like most of the movies I tend to wind up talking about to you on this podcast, this was a movie that I saw for the first time on Prism, which was a Philly kind of cable uh, channel. And it was one of those things that just in 1989, 1990 was on that channel nonstop. And uh, the first time I saw it, I, I loved it. I thought it was a lot of fun. I was familiar with the trailer. Uh, it was always one of those things that I, I had intended to see um, because they used to run the trailer for it on MTV a lot. And I never kind of got around to seeing it. So when it hit cable, uh, I, I watched it again and again and again. And uh, yeah, I, I, I loved it right away. It's funny. I'd seen this before I'd seen any black exploitation films. So this was kind of my first introduction to that you know cinematic world. I think I was already kind of in the midst of seeing a lot of black exploitation films when I saw this. I mean, my later high school years were I don't want to say wall to wall black exploitation because we had other things like Orchard of the Dead in there, but we were really big fans of black exploitation and those movies were of course Black Shampoo, which I talk about all the time, The Mac, 
Shaft, Slaughter, Black Caesar, uh, the Black Six. So there were a lot, and of course, all the Rudy Ray Moore films. So there were a lot of films that I had seen along these lines, but I hadn't seen everything. And I, and I still haven't seen everything. God, I, I wish I had the time to see everything. So I was kind of familiar with the tropes, so I could see where they're coming from with this. But as time has gone on and I've seen more black exploitation films, the more I can appreciate some of the things that they're doing in this film. So there are a lot of nods back. But like I said, it's kind of a follow-up. It's kind of like as if we were shooting a sequel to some of those films. And at the same time, it's breaking new ground with this hero, this Jack Spade hero. And then there's also the parody aspects of it and kind of poking fun at these. And some of the parody, it's light parody at times. Then other times we get really crazy. And you can see the seeds of some of these parody films that uh, Keenan Ivory Wayans would do later. Things like Scary Movie. Um, he, he did uh, Never Drink Your Juice in the Hood, correct? I, I think so. I'm okay. not 100%, though. So we get a little bit of that, but it, he he kind of vacillates between, is this going to be balls-out parody? Is this going to be an action film? Is this going to be kind of a, a nod and a wink to the older films? And I can see where some people might not appreciate that balance, but I think he pulls it off fairly well in this. Yeah, I would uh, I would absolutely agree. One thing that was that was really evident while I was doing my rewatch for this podcast was like it is it is a perfect balance because there are some things that are completely over the top, like uh, Eve Plum's cameo, uh, for example, and uh, you know all the all the kind of, of bean related jokes in that in that sequence. Uh, the pimp of the year sequence is really kind of over the top, and then there's some stuff that's more you know that that that's more kind of subtle humor wise. It's kind of a nice mix of having the huge, broad laughs and having the the more subtle jokes. And I think that that's something that this movie does very well. And at the same time, it is now having seen a lot of these black exploitation movies that it kind of is paying tribute to here. It is it is very loving uh, and very well handled. So it's it had to be difficult to kind of maintain that balance. And I think I think uh, Wayne's does it great. Yeah, we start off fairly ridiculous, and this is kind of a critique of where we were with, we'll call it, say, hip-hop culture of the late mm-hmm. 80s. Like I said, this film was out in 88, so it was probably conceived somewhere in the mid-80s and then shot in 87, I would say. Yeah. It seems like this was shot fairly quickly, and things changed. We'll hear from uh, Peter McCarthy later on in the show, and things were changing as they were filming this. There were scenes being added, taken away, and I'll definitely talk about the script as, as, of this film as well. So, 1988, uh, the, we open up with a death, and we get the, uh, which, which is a fairly common way of opening up a black exploitation film. Usually, you get to see the guy die. In this case, we just have the corpse, and the cops investigating it, and our, our I guess he would be our main cop, though I have to say that poor um, uh, uh, Clue Gulliger gets really kind of the short end of the stick in this film. He only yeah. shows up, like, what, twice in this movie? Yeah. <laughs> poor guy. Yeah. <laughs> so he shows up, and the corpse uh, he's a, the, is a victim of OG. He's over-golded. Uh, he's worn too many gold chains, and he's just, uh, his. I guess his lungs have probably collapsed here, and he's dead because of too much gold. And and that was a great comment uh, at the time as far as, you know, guys wearing way too much jewelry, way too many gold chains. And that is 
at first anyway, the way that we get into the mystery of this film as far as why are these guys doing this, I suppose, but they kind of drop that as we go along. I have to say the script does a little bit better job of carrying through the theme of OG and, and overgolding, though they do have a fantastic joke in here that isn't in the script, which is every time somebody looks at a picture of, of Junebug, they go, how do you go to the bathroom with all that shit on? Maybe that's how he died. His kidneys just gave out. Something like that. It is a great uh, returning, uh, running gag in this film. Yeah, absolutely. And in a film that has a lot of great running gags, that's that's probably my favorite. That one, and then the you're not selling. What, they say Amway in the script. That would no, not selling those new new way products, are you? No way products. <laughs> <laughs> Junebug, Junebug's uh, Spade is the brother of Jack Spade, and we get a pretty good introduction to him after we meet uh, Mama, um, <laughs> Ma Bell, which I love that her name is Ma Bell, <laughs> and Cheryl, Cheryl being uh, Junebug's now uh, widow, um, and this whole idea of introducing us to uh, also the criminal element, and that is, of course, you know, this is a Wayans Brother production, so we're going to get a lot of Wayans in here. And Damon Wayans, young, young Damon Wayans, just tiny pipsqueak Damon Wayans, just a a few years north of his amazing performance as the banana man in uh, (laughs) Beverly Hills Cop. (laughs) Here he is as Leonard. And then Kareem Hardison, who I – Kareem Hardison – who I think I only knew him from um, a different world for the longest time showing up in this. And I love his performance in this movie. Yeah. He's uh, he's, he's really great between this and a, this and death by temptation. The early, the late eighties, early nineties kind of belong to a partisan for a little bit, but yeah, it's a, it's, it's, it's a, like him and uh, him and Wayans have great, chemistry together and i love the idea that they're you know supposedly these tough guys and they're just absolute cowards all the way and they they know that they're going to be uh they're going to be injured by going down the steps repeatedly it's it's wonderful (laughs) i love that you went to death by temptation even more than uh vampire in brooklyn kudos (laughs) to you sir so did did everyone really I told you that we had a print of that at the theater where I worked, and nobody would come and pick it up, so it just stayed in the theater for like years until one of the projectionists just took it home one night. (laughs) Somewhere in Taylor, Michigan, there's a 35mm print of Death by Temptation. Nice. It's right there next to those deleted scenes from uh, from the Magnificent Ambersons. (laughs) Nobody would pick it up from the theater. I just Orson Welles call. He's like, do you still have my film? Yeah, no, keep it. Keep it. It's all right. I have a very important pilot episode to shoot. I have the Muppets coming in later. <laughs> if anyone has seen that uh, Orson Welles awkward TV pilot he did in the late 70s with the Muppets. Hmm. OK. Was that after anyway. his cameo in the Muppet movie? I, I think it's around the same time. Hmm. Yeah, it's 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 on YouTube. It's terrible. It's I think it's enough. just called the Orson Welles show. And it's it's Orson Welles trying to tell people what they should be entertained by. <laughs> and it's all very highbrow and uh, terrible. Uh, yeah. So late it, period Wells. Yes. Oh, God. <laughs> Some gems in there. 
So yeah, quickly we're introduced to Jack Spade. Now I'm going to get into trouble with this episode because I am going to screw up his name because he is Jack Spade, the new hero, and eventually, or very quickly, he's going to meet John Slade, the old hero played by Bernie Casey. And now John Slade, of course, it doesn't take much at all to equate him with John Shaft. And he dresses like Shaft at points. There's even in the original draft of the the, the script, I think his name is like Shaq. So he's really, really Shaft-like. And I wonder if at some point they were trying to get Richard Roundtree to play this role. But I have to say, Bernie Casey, who I absolutely love is fantastic as john slade and especially when he meets him and keen Ivor williams is like the people need you man and his reaction to that is fucking fantastic the people need me it was the people man that made me retire the people said i was too violent a bad image for the kids man so fuck the people the people look i'm retired now okay and I kind of enjoy the feeling of staying alive. Okay, brother. And so we are going to go after Mr. Big, who apparently is putting these gold chains on the street. And really, that's the movie. I mean, the movie is Jack Spade going around with John Slade. My God, this is tough to say. And getting the the, the gang back together, getting the band back together. And doing so, getting uh, Kung Fu Joe, who's played by Steve James. Hammer, who's played by Isaac Hayes. And again, I got to wonder if they're trying to get uh, Fred the Hammer Williamson for that. Right. Slammer, instead of Slaughter, played by Jim Brown. And then eventually, kind of peripheral to this whole thing, is Fly Guy, played by Antonio Fargus, who's really channeling his Huggy Bear character in this. And who has my absolute favorite scene uh, in the movie when he is fresh out of jail on his uh, in his pimpiest of pimp clothes, only to discover that the world he knew has left him behind. And he also is kind of the hero of the movie. Spoiler alert! Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's a, uh, it's, it's, yeah. Uh, you, you talked to him for this uh, this episode, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm really interested to hear what uh, what he has to say because, in my opinion, he steals the movie. I think he gives the best, uh, the the best, both dramatic and kind of comedic performance. Just the look of pain on his face uh, as he's running away after his one goldfish. Uh, shoe has shattered is is just hilarious just just to go back to your point about what you were saying about uh the slade shaft connection i i do like how slade's like theme music is essentially just the is it just straight up the opening of the shaft theme, it is or just is it, yeah it is just yeah shaft. okay yeah, it, which is uh, I, it, which is just fantastic, and I love the idea of just having a band follow him around. That's almost that's that's almost like a Monty Python gag, <laughs> you know. It's 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 really great. That flashback, talking about Fly Guy, the flashback when Slade goes to visit him in jail, and he talks about how great things were in the old day. The yeah. Pimp of the Year flashback is just so great. And then when you watch things like The Mac or Willie Dynamite, and you see some of these basically Pimp of the Year type contests that they have yeah. or these gatherings these players balls and then to see fly guy in this it just makes it even funnier and him doing his poetry that's probably my favorite moment of this movie bar none i'm gonna try to do a little poetry for y'all it's original piece written by me fly guy 
And I want to dedicate this piece to all you players and all you ladies out there. Name of this piece is called My Bitch Better Have My Money. My bitch better have my money. Through rain, sleet, or snow. It was a Shakespeare. My hoe better have my money. I'm telling you, that boy's a genius. Tell it. Not half, not some, but all my cash. Because if she don't, I'm going to put my foot dead in her ass. Yeah, that's right up there with Tyrone Green's uh, Gonna Kill My Landlord. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. And I, I wish that Kung Fu Joe had a little bit more to do. I mean, obviously, Kung Fu Joe, I imagine they would like to have had uh, Jim, Jim Kelly. Kelly in this yeah. role. And he even yeah. gives that great line. Like, there's that line in Three the Hard Way when the uh, the cops come along and they, they put the drugs in Jim Kelly's car. Gonna set me up? You know, I know Mike knows this. Listeners, uh, I'm sure don't. My, uh, my favorite black exploitation film of all time. And probably in my top 10 favorite films of all time is black belt jones uh i i love that movie to no end so kung fu joe is clearly like a tribute to that but i just i i i, I would like to know like if kelly just wasn't interested or if he would you know i'm sure he was approached uh you know but yeah i would i would like to know why he didn't deliver that the uh the performance uh in there because i i, I think clearly you watch it and it is a it is a black belt jones character absolutely 100 oh, yeah. percent. so yeah um I, I would like to know more about like the production of this movie in terms of, you know, clearly certain characters are mo- modeled after certain people. And did they not want to come back and reprise these these roles or were they trying to escape the, the black exploitation image? Um, I, yeah, I, I'd, I'd like to I'd be curious about that. Yeah, it's funny because just a few years, I want to say just a few years north of this was Original Gangsters, the um, uh, Larry Cohen film, where a lot of people did come back, but that was played much more serious than this one was. And not nearly as effective, I don't think. (laughs) No, I don't think so either. I mean, its heart was in its right right place, but I mean, you know, there is kind of a, a wink. And a, and a nod in these in these exploitation films that they you know they realize how much fun they are and I think that was something that was missing from original gangsters right and Isaac Hayes I mean Isaac Hayes is just fantastic and Isaac Hayes is legit I mean of course he he wrote the goddamn theme to the yeah. to Shaft <laughs> yeah. yeah but uh, you know three tough guys and Truck Turner Truck Turner is one of my favorite exploitation oh, films yes. yeah so his appearance in here is is legit fantastic and then jim brown is just always great no matter what and he can play serious and comic very well he gives those great looks i love the the one scene when um he asks jack spade what makes you think you can be a black hero i'm an ex-football player and Jim Brown's look, I was just like, yeah, that's great. And I, I kind of wish that Bernie Casey had been in the shot with them and they had exchanged the look because they're both yeah. ex-football players. Yeah, that would have been great. Not to take anything away from Isaac Hayes. God, God love him. And he is so good in this. His facial expressions when he falls, when he has all the guns on him. Oh, so yeah, yeah. good. He's oh. in, I mean, he's he's hilarious uh, singing in the car at that one scene. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> it's it's just great, yeah. I mean, and and that's the thing that, that that this movie. First off, I feel like this movie doesn't really uh doesn't really get 
any attention these days, which is kind of kind of a shame. Like I, I want like a deluxe Blu-ray edition of this. Exactly. You know, um, you know, as far as I know, it's only ever been available pretty much bare bones, right? I, I, uh, I don't know. Um, maybe there was audio commentary. I don't even know. But yeah, it's uh, it's something that like I'd love to see like like some production featurettes or, you know, I know, I know this movie didn't have the budget for too much, like behind the scenes stuff, but I'd love to see like a, like a, you know, a, a new newly produced documentary about it or something, you know, like, I, I don't even know who would have the rights to this at this point, but yeah, I, I think it's a movie that, um, that doesn't really get discussed very much. And that's why I'm kind of glad that you're, you're doing this episode and which is why I wanted to be a part of it. I totally agree. Yeah, it came out on Blu-ray just a couple months ago, I want to say, and there's nothing on it. And yeah. I thought, okay, this is finally a chance for the Hammer Slammer and Slade pilot episode to come out and be an extra on here. No, it yeah. it's not. I mean, right now, I mean, with our immense channel of bootlegs and torrents and all of these things that we have out there in the world – the only place I could find Hammer Slammer and Slade, and thank God it's out there, is on brownsugar.com. Now, brownsugar.com is, it's kind of like a little piece of heaven has fallen into yeah. my lap. It is just almost all black exploitation, black focused films, and so many great titles out there, and then rarities like this. So I was really happy to finally, because I've been looking for that for. Yeah, I've never seen it. I, I only recently, you know, learned of it. It was one of those things where I'm just like, wait, what? What is this? Isaac Hayes was in this thing. What? And yeah. and he plays Hammer in here as well. And yeah, it's Bernie Casey, Jim Brown, and uh, Isaac Hayes are back. And then it's uh, Eric LaSalle as oh Jack my god, Spade wow, there. yeah, oh, young, wow. Okay. young Eric LaSalle, like to the point where I almost didn't recognize him. Martin so fresh Lawrence. off a of soul glow, yes. Eric LaSalle. Wow, <laughs> exactly. Okay. And then Martin Lawrence is the Willie character in here and he actually does a really good job he has this weird like vocal thing that he's doing oh and i forgot steve james is also in there and they managed to get uh ron o'neill oh nice okay yeah uh, he's barely in it. He plays yeah. a cop who gets set up. It's his, of course, it's his last day out of the job. He gets, sure, yeah. Yep, he gets set up by a crooked cop, and then it's up to the guys to, um, you know, to bail him out to to figure out what's going on. And then Janet Janet Dubois is also back, but she in this one is not Ma Bell. She is um, Isaac Hayes's wife. She's Slammer's wife. Okay. Or okay. Hammer's wife. I can't say it's great by any means, but it was really nice to see those guys, and I just love that chemistry that these yeah. uh, you know old school guys have. Oh, that's fun! Off there, I'll absolutely have to seek that out. I know yeah. I, I'll be doing that uh, after I get off the phone with you this evening. Okay. <laughs> and then it was directed by Michael Schultz, whose name has come up on this uh, podcast many times before. Which, uh, of course, director of many great things like uh, I want to say Cooley High, of course. Okay. Um, Car Wash, you know, one oh, of yeah. the classics, and then The Last Dragon. So. Oh. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I'm I'm noticing that we we tend to talk about the same movies on here. <laughs> like all the people I love tend to, you know. I, I tend to be on the podcast featuring them in some way, wh- whether I realize it or not. Right. Small cinematic world. <laughs> Unfortunately, they don't have a Roku channel yet, or else okay. I would just be in heaven. But So you can just watch these films online, um, and then apparently you can do it through 
Chromecast? I don't really oh, okay. know. Uh, some of this stuff is is beyond an old man like me. Yeah, I just hooked my laptop up to the, up to the TV anymore. That's pretty much all I ever do. And Clue Gulliger, like I said, he really gets the short end. He should be in this a lot more, and there are more scenes of him. And I have to say that like I was saying earlier, the the they kind of lose the thread when it comes to the gold plot, yeah. the Mr. Big stuff. Um, they kind of go off in their own direction. They kind of meander off and do their thing. The script is a lot tighter and has a lot of stuff. Like there's a – so basically there's a, a car chase. They chase down a truck at one point. When they get the information from um, – I can't remember if it's Willie or Lester, but they get the information from them and uh, where the big shipment is going to be coming in. And they also, you know, they need to trade uh, that. They don't trade uh, the nephew. They don't trade Willie for Cheryl. They end up trading all of these gold chains. They find out where the shipment is coming in. They have a car, uh, a car chase with this big semi. They manage to get the uh, crash the semi. Uh, it's filled with gold chains, and they use that as leverage to get Cheryl back. So it really follows through a much more linear black exploitation plot as we go through here. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there's like I said, they kind of lose it as they go along, but that's okay. I'm actually all right with that. It it feels this movie feels sloppy in a lot of ways, but I really don't mind it, and it kind of right, keeps yeah. that anarchic feel to it. Like I don't know what what is going to come next. Yeah, and I feel like in a way that that kind of is how you know the the source you know the the inspiration for this movie was too. A lot of a lot of those movies were kind of very choppy and everything because there were you know things that they could they could only get accomplished with the budgets that they had. So a lot of time there were gaps or just uh you know just things picked up and then never never carried through again on in a, in movies like that i think i think black bell jones is like that for sure at times even when it comes to my favorite part of the pimp of the year thing i mean you can tell when you watch it that there was more to this and the yeah. script gives a little bit of of insight in that that there was two contestants it wasn't just fly guy it was there was another contestant and we get his talent and then as he's starting to get his talent he gets gunned down and then they immediately crown fly guy as pimp of the year so there's that kind of choppiness between the bitch better have my money and then his crowning and they just kind of chop that part out and went yeah. right into that so so but it works i mean it still works and like i said it's kind of held together by a string but yeah it plays to that that cheapness and you can see that i mean they play up the cheapness which i really appreciate they play up this whole idea of one of my other favorite scenes is when ma bell suddenly <laughs> turns from her yeah. from jeanette dubois yes. into the white stuntman with the mustache the, the very the very big and also fantastically 1970s mustache too i love which is it just an an additional great uh moment like he has like it's almost like a uh jameson parker uh prince of darkness porn stash that he has <laughs> of that sequence but it's a uh, it's fantastic yeah 
Oh, so good. Yeah, that's the and that sequence is edited together so so well, and it's so much fun to watch that sequence. Uh, yeah, and and I mean that, that that's kind of like the you know all the jokes in this movie I think hold up really well. Yeah. Like it doesn't it doesn't feel particularly dated to me. I mean, it does feel very like late eighties, but there is kind of a weird timelessness to it as well. Uh, and I and I think like comedically, it's it's still solid. Well, those weird moments of surreality, like the big brim club that they go to. Right, yeah. And you got to have a big hat to come in here. You know, just all those guys with those fantastic hats and that there are dwarves hiding underneath them. Right, yeah. And and <laughs> I, I think one of the dwarves was Peter Dinklage. He kind of looks like the one with the gun who uh, – who, you know, gets shot out of the hat, kind of look like Dinklage to me. And I don't mm. mean to be a uh, dwarfist here, uh, you know, uh, I, but he kind of looked like Peter Dinklage, maybe in an early role. Uh, he's not credited, but who knows? Could be. And I was so glad to see Tony Little come out yes, of that hat. Yes. And then that that plays back to that earlier joke. And there are moments in here. I mean, this is definitely this is uh, pre In Living Color, pre uh, Keenan Ivory Wayne show, Wayne's Brothers shows. But there yeah. are moments in here where you're just like, this is a skit. So yeah. the whole idea of Cherry that they meet at the bar, who who wants her twelve inches, and then the way <laughs> that she takes herself apart. Oh yeah. Oh, so good. The way that they have her leg fly off just always cracks me up. <laughs> and uh and 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 Spade's look in that scene is just pure oh, yeah. horror. Yeah. Not get out there. Like it, it was it was frightening enough when she took the wig off, but then everything else comes off and with yeah, that little it's... bow it, with the one little piece of hair sticking up and she's yeah. got a bow in it. <laughs> <laughs> There's and, and it's almost like I almost wish they pushed that a little bit further to the point where like you really get uncomfortable and it goes over too long oh, and then yeah. becomes funny again. I almost wish they did that, uh, but it's 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 a great sequence as is, and it's complete nonsense. It's just a a fantastic nonsense moment in the film. So I like that the movie isn't afraid to like do these detours into things that don't really you know have anything to do with anything else. Uh, Chris Rock's rib scene is another oh, great example of that. It's God. just it's just a little bit of a little bit of funny business that they have in there, just as an aside, which is great. May I help you, sir? How much for order of ribs? Uh, two fifty. Two fifty. How many ribs do I get with that? Uh, about five. So I guess that's about 50 cents a rib, huh? Yeah, about. Okay, let me get one. Right on. One order. One order ribs. No, 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 no. One rib. One rib. I sure am hungry. Uh, make that one rib to go. One rib? One rib. What else? You got any soda? One dollar. Oh, come on now. Look out for a brother, man. Come on. Hey, check this out. Why don't you let me get a sip for 15 cents? My cups cost more than 15 cents. All right, fuck the cup. Pour it in my hand for a dime. Look, you greasy-headed Jerry Curl Wan. Pay me and get the hell out of my store. You got change for a hundred? 
I'm very curious because when I saw that the first time, I want to say I'd heard him do that bit before, but I'm not sure if I'm like retroactively remembering that because I know he did that on his first comedy album. Right. So I'm like, did I hear that afterwards or did I – because I know I saw this movie – kind of like you right around the time that it was released um for me it was vhs so it's like 89 probably is when i saw it and i think that rock's first album came out in 91 okay so but then he had been on the stand-up circuit for so long so yeah and it may have been a bit that he did in the comedy that he he they allowed him to incorporate into the movie as well you know the whole crackhead getting ribs thing my god so good now, how much it costs if I don't bump nobody? Good Lord, that's a lot of money. How about I give you 97 cents and you let me crash my pinto into you? And, yeah, and there were so many, like, little roles in here. I, I loved catching the guy who's from the fat video was in here. Yes, yeah. Oh, and, um, and yeah, in the uh, big brim uh, bar, yeah. Yes, I mean, Hawthorne James has a, a much bigger role, but him showing up as one-eyed Sam. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And that bit, too, where they keep talking about the goofy-ass medals that they have on their chest. Right. Oh, man. Well, this one is for typing, and this one is for dot champion, and this one is for surfing. And this I, is- I got that one. Oh, never mind. Never mind. Shut up. And, uh, oh, who's the other one? Um, there's another guy. who Oh, the, the priest at the, the wake. Um, he ended up, sh- uh, I think he he ended up being in like the Friday movies. Okay. So he's very familiar as well. Uh, John Witherspoon. And I think he might've been in one of the house party movies. That That's a series that I should cover on the, the show. Yeah, especially, if yeah, I could get again, Robin Harris in this, in, in yes. one of his, Oh yeah. yeah. One of his early roles shows up for just a hot second yeah. there to, as the bartender yep. at, at one eyed Sam's. Yeah. Yeah. He was in Friday and then he ended up, Oh, he ended up being in little man. Um, I'm talking about, uh, uh, John Witherspoon. Okay. Uh, I'm s- sorry, John. <laughs> <laughs> when, when the Wayans brothers are on, they're really on. When they're off, disaster can happen. Yeah, yeah. I feel like, too, like a lot of it is like the scary movie uh, franchise. It's such easy money for them that, oh, yeah. uh, you know, like they, they, you know, it. They, I don't know if they still do very well, but I know they initially did very well and enough to, you know, have the franchise go for how long it did. And then it kind of spun off into like a haunted house and stuff like that. But, uh, yeah, uh, those movies were gold mines for a little bit. So it's just like, eh, maybe we can just, you know, count the money here. I don't know. <laughs> it, it well, that was seem- a weird series. The way that they switched from the Wayne's brothers back to like, the Zucker brothers, yeah, because they were they were pretty much out zuckering the Zucker yeah, brothers they were, in that yeah. first movie. Uh, that first, I'd have to say, the first movie and the third movie, I think, are my favorites of that. And with the fourth movie in there, and I don't think if I ever made it through the fifth one, yeah, that was, I think, that was the one that starts off with Charlie Sheen in there. So again, going back to Topper Harley, you know, it's like okay, I know he can do this stuff, but I think at the time I was just like done with charlie sheen for yeah. a little while i'd had enough tiger blood in my system right yeah yeah no i think i'll pass keen ivor waynes would kind of go on to try to do it straight as well in a low down dirty shame mm. which i remember liking yeah, a lot i enjoyed that I quite a bit it. absolutely yeah and then i revisited it over the weekend and i have to say if you haven't seen that movie in a while don't go back oh Keep really good memories of it okay yeah 
there's some homophobia in there. There's Jada Pinkett Smith just nonstop talking, and yeah, it's it's not good. Okay. So keep your memories. Yeah. Preserve them. And then I kind of wish that Clarence Williams III had had more of a role in this movie. Yeah. Because I love that guy. One of the things that this is like, I, I hate to to bring this up again, but that Eve Plum cameo is is amazing in this movie, and I. I, I just I, I just love the randomness of that. Yeah. And even like the Brady Bunch theme is playing in the background during her scene and, you know, the kid's speech about Abraham Lincoln. Yeah, it was uh, it's yeah, the, the, this movie is uh, it's casting is is fantastic uh, across the board, big and small supporting roles uh, aside. And it's it's nice to see, like, you, you know, you kind of don't know who's going to pop up next. Let me hear your report. Okay. Abraham Lincoln was born in a log cabin in Illinois. This poor white trash went on to become the president of the United States. What then office this white capitalist swine? Swine? Manipulated the freedom of the black man for his own political career. Free brother! So another piece of poor white trash shot him in the head. The end. Thank you, Jesus. Whitey, I am very pleased. Yes, you and your lovely sister, you may go and watch TV. Yeah, and then, I mean, John Vernon, at first in the script, they were going to hide who he was, okay. and it was actually going to be Shelley. <laughs> in the script, it's written as Shelley Winters nice. shows up. okay. Yeah. <laughs> so that that's that nice moment. I mean, there are some really good self-reflexive moments of, you know, like the, the hero has his music and we've get and that's one of the nice things too in Jack Slade's band is King Cotton, um, who a lot of people know uh, best from Tapeheads, uh, it, the Roscoe Chicken and Waffles commercial. At least that's how I know King Cotton. And uh, for years, I was just like, is that him? Is that that same guy? And sure enough, it is. Okay. Um, it's, but another great Tapeheads um I'm going to get you suck a uh, connection there. But um, yeah, so there's those moments. There's, um, you know, a lot of little winks at the camera kind of thing. But at the end, when John Vernon gives his whole, you know, exploitation uh, villain speech, fantastic stuff. And then the way that everybody's joining in on that is great, too. You're Mr. Big. But I thought you were. What? Above playing an exploitation villain? Well, you're wrong. Lots of famous people have done exploitation movies. Uh, Shelley Winters was in the... Cleopatra Jones. Uh-huh. Uh, Angie Dickinson. Uh, uh, Big Bad Mama. Big Bad Mama. Jamie Lee Curtis. Uh-huh. Halloween. Right, right, right. And now, I'm Mr. Big. And I'm sorry, boys, but there ain't going to be a sequel to this one. It's a nice performance from him, I think, too. Uh, a little underwritten, uh, yeah. you know, but again, we discussed that earlier, how it's kind of, you know, they kind of lose the thread of, of, of him a bit. But yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's a fun performance for what it is. I would like to have seen a little bit more. Again, I think they they go so hard on the exploitation parody that they don't 
give that and the the Clue Gulager thing enough that that they probably should have given it a little bit more. But then it's a pretty tidy. What is this like eighty some minutes long? Yeah. So it moves at a nice clip. I mean, I of course I would have liked to have seen that kind of Shelley Winters freak out oh, from um, from Cleopatra Jones, yeah. but. <laughs> Uh, the Nichelle Nichols freak out from Truck Turner. Yeah. I tell you what you can and can't do with it. Do you understand what I'm saying? I didn't say I was leaving. Shut up! Now all you whores sit down, I want to talk to you. Anybody thinking about leaving here is going to find my left foot square up their ass. Do you understand it? Why? Shut up, you junkie whore! They also reference uh, Andrew Dickinson and uh, Big Bad Mama as well. Which I, I don't necessarily consider that one a black exploitation yeah. film. I would have gone with Stella Stevens from Hot Potato myself. Nice. But, okay, you know. yeah, well, you know you're going to – I mean, it's still Black Belt Jones, even though Hot Potato, I think, has some a lot of problems. But, yeah. I'm glad I'm not the only one. That's, that's what I've watched one, whereas – Black Belt Jones, I've probably watched mm, a couple dozen times. Yeah, yeah, I feel, I feel they really, uh, they really kind of dropped the ball there. They dropped the potato. Womp womp. Okay. Uh, right. It was too hot. Yeah. And then, yeah, like you were saying, this movie definitely gets um, overshadowed these days because there aren't a whole lot of black exploitation films, but. We talked about Black Dynamite on the show a long time ago, and that movie just blew this film out of the water. I yeah. have to say that both of them are great, and they are definitely two very different films and two very different styles. Like I said, this is kind of more of a follow-up and a look back at things, whereas Black Dynamite is much more a relic of a relic from the past. It is the film that never was from 19, say 74, 75. I mean, the, it was a time capsule to have Richard Nixon as one of your main villains in is fantastic. Right. And so it really feels like it escaped from the past that it was this thing that was maybe left at a movie theater for a long time and nobody came to pick it up. And then finally somebody released this thing again that's the style of Black Dynamite, whereas this is much more of a knowing nod to the past. But So I'd say that they are both fantastic. Um, they're just coming at things from a much different uh, way. Yeah, I, I enjoy them both, but of the two, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with I'm going to get you, Sucka, because uh, I feel like – and this is a weird adjective to use, but I feel like there's a subtlety to this movie where, uh, where it has – not quieter moments, but it – it's not as amped up a hundred percent the entire runtime, whereas I feel Black Dynamite is, which is part of that film's appeal, uh, for sure. But yeah, I, I think I think they definitely would make a great double bill together, and as they should, any uh, programmers of the Draft House out there who may be listening. You know, Black History Month is coming up pretty soon. Uh, one thing before I forget, uh, Don't Be a Menace to South Central While Drinking Your Juice in the Hood is not directed by Keenan Ivory Wayans, and I don't think that he had much, if anything, to do with it. It was actually written by Sean and Marlon Wayans and Phil Bowman, and then directed by Paris Barclay. So I, I apologize for that. There are some moments in the script that I think would have fit. Okay, I'm sorry. Keenan Ivory Wayans plays a mailman in it. There are some moments in the I'm going to get you suck a script that play like they came from Don't Be a Menace. There is a scene where 
Jack is going down to the rough part of town. It's between him leaving his mama's house for the first time and going to meet um, Jack Spl- John Slade and that scene of the Ghetto Olympics. And he goes into this really rough part of town. And the way that the script describes it, it's like um, there are ice cream trucks coming down the street and they're selling drugs. And there's a guy like leaning out of a window and yelling at a guy in the street like, hey, can you pick me up? So and so, you know, however many drugs. And he throws him down some money and he's like, you know, get a bag for yourself. And so it's, it's much more of this kind of outrageous parody. And there's a character. It's really weird because there's a character character in that scene called pop and he's like the the old man of the neighborhood and he's like you know jack what are you doing down here this is really dangerous and then i'm pretty sure that they i don't know if they shot that or not because pop ends up being in the credits but he's not actually in the movie unless he's in a part that i'm not aware of right so it's kind of strange that the you know, like I said, I think that there were a lot of things that were shot. Again, to your point, wouldn't it be great if we had the deleted scenes? Yeah. It would be great. Yeah, because this is a film that feels like it hit a lot on the cutting room floor. Even when it came to the joke of – because I don't think a lot of people necessarily get this, but when um, they're divvying up the task to take down Mr. Big and John Slade takes the roof and he comes down and he's got the dynamite in one hand and he's wearing the leather jacket. He's got the gun in the other hand. I mean, that is such a John uh, Shaft moment. Right, yeah. And you're waiting for that to happen. But just the way that they shot that, I was like – Okay, I kind of get that he blew up, and that's the end of the the rope out there burning, and we see him later show up, but it's just like, they really could have shot that a little bit better right. to bring that joke home. Yeah. But, you know, the little now I'm nitpicking, so I need to stop that. Yeah, and it's weird, too. There are people listed in the credits, or at least uh, in on IMDb, and we both know how reliable IMDb is. You are fake news. They say that Robert Townsend makes a cameo appearance and that Peggy Lipton makes a cameo. And I don't see either one of those guys in this. No, I don't either. And I, I, I you know, I wonder if that's the sort of thing they did scenes and they were just cut or that it's just inaccuracy for IMDb, which would make more sense. It would almost make sense if Peggy Lipton were the Eve Plum role, because then they could have had a Mod Squad reference right. there. And maybe she was slated to be, and then it became Eve Plum for whatever reason. There's also a little bit that we don't necessarily get. Uh, uh, again, I'm nitpicking here, but when Fly Guy is walking down the street, that moment that you referenced earlier, when he turns around and people are laughing at him, I mean, the music in this part is fantastic. It's, we've got um, Curtis Mayfield singing, and it's actually Fishbone doing the music for this. Yeah. And when he turns around, it's basically he was supposed to have theme music as well. And they don't necessarily bring that joke home either, because when he turns around, and he looks, there's Fishbone laughing and kind of falling around on the ground. Right. And we can tell these guys are musicians, but we never actually see them play. Right. So I think there's a little bit cut out there as well. Yeah, again, let's get a special edition of this. <laughs> yeah. yeah, come, come on, on, guys. Like a 30th anniversary is uh, is next year. There's time, you know. I'll I'll uh, call up Criterion see what we can get going here. Get uh, Kim Wayans to sing oh, audio my... audio commentary. Well, there, there, again, uh, there's another fantastic scene 
in in the in this movie. Just another a nice little bit of nonsense. Her uh, her version of when the Saints go marching in. It's just. It's fantastic. And another nod to this being a movie, that whole that, that whole thing, she's the director's sister, and then that uncomfortable yeah. look from Keenan is yeah, fantastic. it's great. Oh, and we didn't even talk about David Allen Greer. I mean, basically doing uh, – No Soul Simmons. No, no Soul Simmons. That's a, a newscaster. <laughs> yeah. Again, another small performance uh, – Small role, big performance in this in this movie. Yeah, and and again, another great, uh, funny scene. And y- you know, you you definitely see like uh, the primordial, uh, the primordial soup that was in Living Color in this film. You know, forming and and kind of gelling together. Yeah. Oh God. And I don't know if people necessarily remember what a big deal in Living Color yeah. was when it was out because. That really that that changed a lot of comedy. They did a, a fantastic job with that. Not only comedy, but also I mean that show gave us people like J Lo and the Fly Girls and all these you know, so many different aspects came out of that one show. And uh, for better or worse, Jim Carrey. All right, we're going to take a break and play a pair of interviews. The first is with Fly Guy himself, Antonio Fargus, and the second is with producer Peter McCarthy, and we'll be back right after these brief messages. Wife Jessica, I have an idea. What's that, husband Dustin? As you know, we love movies. Yes, dear, I know. But we also love podcasts. I'm aware, my love. And then there's this other part of us that really loves movie commentary tracks. Get to the point, sweetheart. Well, if we made a movie podcast slash commentary track hybrid audio program, it would certainly be the best married couple movie podcast slash commentary track hybrid audio program on the internet, right? Without doubt. But whatever would we call it? We are the Popcorn Poops. Popcorn Poops is a weekly podcast hosted by married couple Dustin and Jessica Kramer. That's us. Each week we choose a movie based on a monthly theme and then we sit down and record a syncable commentary track as we watch the movie. But what makes Popcorn Poops special is that you don't have to sync up our podcast to enjoy the show, so you can listen to us like you would any other standalone podcast. On our show, we like to talk about theory, story structure, genre conventions, and trivia with a healthy dose of dick jokes. Gotta have the dick jokes. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and Google Play Music. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram for frequent updates about the show, including our weekly movie still identification game. Visit us on the web at popcornpoops.com. We'll be waiting for you, and not in a creepy way. Okay, kind of a creepy way. Yeah, okay, fair warning. Hey. Hello. A little bit of introduction. We are the Film Room cast. I am Albert Wiltfong. I am Austin Shin. And we talk about movies. We We talk about anything we like to our heart's content. We talk about everything from the very best films ever made to the very worst. <laughs> and we have... Scrape the bottom of the barrel on the worst ones. It's it's not what you'd expect, either. No, no, no. We are the uh, kind of cast for which Birdemic is a step above some of the stuff we've covered. I hesitate to say this, but the room is a little bit higher than some of the stuff we've covered. But on the other hand, we've also covered stuff like The Godfather, Magnolia. We've covered the very best cinema has to offer, the very worst, so don't try to pigeonhole us. And of course, we like to talk about the hot button topics. We try not to get too political, but we take a political stance. We're people, we have to. We have a huge backlog. We've been running for about three years. We've got casts on the MPAA, we've got stuff on like adaptations, we've got stuff on movies that have been 
turned into TV shows. A couple of nostalgia retrospectives looking at things like movie theaters and video stores. Proud of those ones. And we've even got at least one cast on a movie that doesn't exist, so <laughs> got that. Oh yeah, with, uh, with more to come. So that's us. That's us. Uh, so yeah, listen to the film room. I have to credit the backtrack. It is from John Carpenter's album, Lost Themes. I suggest picking up that album. It's a really great album. But yeah, you can find us at thefilmroom.podbean.com or on iTunes if you prefer to subscribe there. We're out there. Yeah. Thank you all. Hope you listen to us and good night. All right. Hey, Projection Booth listeners, I'm Chris Stashu, a writer. And I'm Sean Liang, an actor, and we are the hosts of The Culture Cast. Twice a week, Sean and I sit down and talk movies new and old, often centered around monthly genres. We also talked with people who were involved in the films themselves, like Jack Black, Doug Jones, and my favorite was Adam Green. <laughs> Our guests truly span the gamut of film. We also have weekly guest co-hosts, including the host of the podcast you're listening to now, Mike White. He uh, has joined us on some of our cinematic adventures and follies, including when we talked about the John Cusack classic 2012. So if you're looking to fill the time between Projection Booth podcasts with more film musings, then check out the Culture Cast. That's Culture with a K on any podcast apps, iTunes, or over at cultureshock.com slash culturecast. Originally, how did you get into acting? Because I know you were in the cool world, like, when you were still a teenager. <laughs> the first, um, well, I was one of 11 children, and growing up in New York, and I was considered, like, the sensitive one. I was number three, the third son in the, in the, in, in the family of 11, ended up being 11 siblings. But anyway, when I was 13 years old, just going about, when I just turned 14, I was getting ready to go into high school, and there was a uh, ad in the newspaper, the Amsterdam News, a paper paper published in Harlem, still published today. They were casting a film about gangs called The Cool World. I didn't know that this was like a play that was that had been on Broadway that Billy D. Williams had starred in, but they were making a film of it, <clears throat> and they wanted young young actors. Uh, and there weren't that many actors in the young black actors in the screen actors guild. Plus, it was like a non, it was almost like a non-union film. In fact, the cool world was in black and white. That's how long ago it was. And it was a very, very gritty film about a teenager who's coming, coming of age. And the way he came of age was to prove that he could, you know, be a tough guy and purchase his gun and, and then fight his rival gang member. Anyway, I, I, I always tell young people when I, uh, talk about my career and that that because I could read well I was I had no experience at all there was an ad in Amsterdam news my mother said why don't you go for this and I and I reluctantly said yes and that changed my life because I could read well I was able to let my natural whatever it is I had for this for this escapism which turned out to be a business that that grew me up and enabled me to get into character so I wouldn't have to deal with who I was or find out who I was because I was able to get into all these characters and, you know, after 57 years, I guess it's been effective. But um, I tried out for the film. I got a small part in it. Actually, I had one of the leads, but when they took some test shots, uh, I was just this innocent kid from, from Chelsea and New York and Manhattan. And uh, I look like a baby now looking back at it, but 
I didn't get the main role, but I did get a small part, so I had a small extra role in it, and that started my career. How did you and uh, Bob Downey meet? <laughs> I started getting a reputation for doing these urban characters um, in New York uh, because I, I think I found my niche in that I could get into character and do all of these characters that other people didn't want to do. Just, uh, you know, I would take chances. I was, I was this fearless guy. Um, because I guess I wasn't fear, so I was this fearless guy who would do all these other things. And, and I was doing a part on Broadway at the time with, with James Earl Jones and the Great White Hope. And my age at the time was, uh, knew Robert Downey Sr. and, uh, knew he was casting this film. And it was this crazy cast of characters, all these wild people in this film called Putney Swope. So he introduced me, and we hit it off right away. I had that kind of sensibility, and uh, and the rest is history. Because I was, we would be filming at night. That we called guerrilla guerrilla filming in New, around New York, and and mostly at night. Because uh, right after I would finish on Broadway in the Great White Hope, I and I was doing a, this eighty-year-old man on Broadway too. It was cool. So I was always into character and really played myself. So and and Putney Swope was just another extension of getting into this character called the Arab, and fitting into this the psychic of Bob Downey was because he was just like this guy who was like visionary. And I did two films with him. I did The Pound after that about a greyhound a greyhound dog who about these dogs who were getting ready to be euthanized and we were in this pound waiting to be euthanized it was just wild wild stuff it was the kind of revolutionary wild stuff that was going on in new york not only in film but also off broadway all that stuff so it was a rich time to come up in the game you were in shaft which just kind of blew the doors <laughs> off of African-American cinema in the 1970s. What was that experience like, especially working with Gordon Parks? Wow. You know, I mean, I, looking back, I just, I've just been well, well placed in some of some memorable opportunities. And, uh, and Shaft was another one. Uh, just, I mean, not many people were doing the, the kinds of characters that I was able to play and just in one singular moment, and my my career has been in film has been captured captured capsulized in in special moments in films. You know, I never really played the lead. I was always doing what I call the dirty work, getting down there, getting funky, getting you know, and uh, and uh, representing you know a genre or 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 or, or an element in in our neighborhoods that wasn't put on film before. So. Shaft uh, was one of those things, and then working with Gordon Parks, and you know, you don't know what you're doing. You don't know you're doing history making stuff until after, you know. And to see that how important that film was in 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 cinematic history, and also because of Isaac Hayes and the soundtrack and all of that, um, and that thing that also jumpstart that the same opportunity happened in a lot of ways in Car Wash. Now that's years, years afterwards, where you had a great soundtrack and uh, and an interesting character, again doing the things that people weren't doing, like playing a gay role in in uh, in Car Wash before it was popular to do that. So uh, that's that's the kind of journey that I've been on. 
you talked about those small, memorable roles. And, of course, the one that jumps to my mind is you as Doodlebug and Cleopatra Jones. There you go. <laughs> oh, my God. You're just amazing. You know, you know, I had this idea of, like, being Jimmy Cagney, you know, when I was being shot, you know. And, and then the, the classic hair is like a woman. You got to treat it right, you know. And, I mean, just wonderful, wonderful dialogue that I was able to bring to life. I mean, you, you know, the actor, it's on the page, but it but it has to be brought to life by the actor. And, and segue from that back to back to the 80s, and I'm going to get you, sucker. The same kind of, you know, arc and the same kind of uh, progression, you know, sometimes people would say, well, you know, aren't you, you know, being, feel like you're being stereotyped? No, no, you know. Nobody said that to, to Jimmy Cagney or to some of the actors who played one thing, but he did each one different. And each character that I played had its own, you know, I like doing those kinds of roles, you know. And so I didn't feel like I was being typecast or anything. I think I was filling a niche. And that niche, you know, called for someone, someone you know, who has been given a gift to be able to bring those those characters to life. Well, when it comes to Fly Guy, I mean, I love that you play both the character earlier, like when he's at the top of his game, when he's being given the, the pimp of the year award. <laughs> and then also the, the out of prison stuff. I have to ask you how easy or difficult was it to walk on those crazy goldfish shoes? It was, it was difficult because the actual shoes that they use for the close up were plec- with glass, well, basically glass and, uh, and they had water in them and they had real fish and then when they did the far shot, it was plexiglass. But each, but because I had to create that coming down the stairs very gingerly, and then I continued that, that, you know, and another thing is like every character has a spine, a musical spine. And I think having a distinctive walk has been part of every character that I do because it's the way people ambulate, which says a lot about who they are. So, that walk was created out of, you know, out of the character, out of, you know, the uniform that I was wearing and the fact that he had to just, you know, take his time. And so it created a, a cadence that was, you know, and then when you score it to music, it just, you know, it all comes together. Actually, I'm putting together a book about um, Elliot Gould's films in the 1970s. Busting. Can you tell me, yeah, can you tell me what it was like working on Busting? <laughs> Wow, Whew. that was, I'm again, one little scene, one little scene, and then there was a um, opportunity and then having the actor to create and to fill, fill that role. It was just another, another stop on the block, and uh, you do your stuff, you lay it down, and then you move on. And then, you, you know, I, I mean, I never even, like a lot of actors say, I never watch my stuff, you know, well... Today, you know, I, I'm the same thing. Now I can watch my stuff because I can see and also through the eyes of people such as yourself and people who have appreciated or seen the cinematic history that uh, of my cinematic history to be able to appreciate now you know, what what I most uh, was not a struggle, but an opportunity to uh, um, because you kind of match your life according to what's going on in your life as to how you can enter this wonderful world of, of, of 
escapism almost, you know, I, I call, I call my work is my vacation. Life is where I do the work, you know, being Antonio Fargas is the greatest role I'll ever play. But, uh, these characters are something that, that Antonio Fargas gets to develop himself through. So it's, it's a, uh, you know, it's a very therapeutic kind of deal, you know, and, uh, and I've been able to, uh, you know, get a lot of therapy out of out of my work. How was uh, Peter Hyams to work with as a director? No, he was cool. Just you know, uh, you, you see these guys, and he, I mean, he, Peter Hyams almost looked like Clark Kent. You know, he was a straight faced guy. Say, and that's the beauty of this: that a lot of these guys didn't know how to play or how to direct the guy to do these urban characters. So I had to do a lot of that stuff myself. I had to bring the character. They couldn't tell me how to be black or hip or cool or how to walk and all that stuff. And I had to just use my resources to be able to help them create. And, you know, and that's, that's what it's been. I, um, I think about the Chris Christopherson movie that I did, uh, Cisco Pike. I mean, another one of those things, you know, where, um, it was just the same kind of, the same kind of scenario. And that was wonderful working with Chris and, and, uh, you know, cause he was, uh, you know, this guy that I admired and, you know, Rhodes Scholar and all these things that he brought to the table plus good looking. And then that reprise with David Soul and, and Starsky and Hutch. I mean, good looking guy, very extremely talented, sensitive, and uh and also a musician so there's been a lot of repeats in terms of the experience and and the and the cloth of the brotherhood that we have and sisterhood that we have in in this business so was it easier than working for like a Gordon Parks or a Michael Schultz than it was to work for a white director who, like the guy who directed uh, different say, demands you know i mean uh um first of all there weren't that many African American directors. So, so the experience, you know, and also going in and even in casting, you know, it's, you know, a lot of people can open, but can you close, you know, getting the job, but closing the show and delivering and people having an instant. That's why people get a reputation and people started to have, it's almost an ensemble business where people would use people because they knew what they could count on. You know, and if they knew that, you know, that you were, you know, that you could bring edginess to a character, now everybody's doing edgy. <laughs> so, so there's a lot more to choose from today. And, uh, which is why, like, I'm glad that my time is, you know, is sort of past and, uh, and I'm moving on to other things, you know, um, as I progress down and, uh, and, and watch the, watch the wheels in the parade go by. Meanwhile, stepping out when I'm called to, when I hear my music and I come out and I dance and then I go back and just sit down. So, um, you know, so it's like that. We talked a little bit about some of the great character names that you've played over the years. I think one of my other favorites is uh, when you played Sweet Stick Wild- Weldon in uh, <laughs> That's me Cold coming Shack. back and in Cold Shack. You know, you do these things and almost they're almost forgotten until they come back because nothing is forgotten now because of YouTube, because of the internet, because of all of these things and Netflix and I mean all of the different avenues. I mean, there's so many TV, uh, cable TV networks that are just based on 
on old television shows and all of that. And, you know, I'm part of one with uh, with uh, Cozy TV. I'm their ambassador uh, for for Cozy TV, and they've been having for three years. But but yeah, that Sweet Stick Weldon. I mean, just the name. <laughs> you know, uh, and uh, you know, and working with a guy like Darren McGavin. I remember when he played this detective in New York City. You know, way back, and then to to work with him and see you know some of these uh, icons, how they worked, you know, and how they how they how they worked on the set, and all the things that the the, the seamlessness of them transitioning from character from character, and then also having traits that that identify them that put their print on it and, and I've been able to create characters where I put my print on it you know that's an Antonio Fargus performance you know or if you see something else you someone would say oh you know that you know that character reminded me of you or how you that's the ultimate compliment yeah, I remember when I went to see uh, Ken Russell's Whore at the theater and you came on screen. I was just so elated. You know, that's what happens. You know, I've been in the theater and seen when I appear on screen, there's a, there's a buzz that goes on. You can almost feel it. And that, that's, you know, that's, that's very, very satisfying when you have a connection with the audience and when they see you. I mean, the same thing happened. I was sitting in, in front of... Um, uh, uh, Eddie Murphy, when at, uh, when we showed, I'm gonna get you, sucker, at the screening. At the at, and man, he tapped me on the shoulder and said, "That's the funniest shit I've ever seen." <laughs> you know, and the, that that kind of stuff, you know, is you know, you know, yeah, you know, and uh, you know, because of the power of television, you know, you that was in kind. I did a film. That that was having a screening in Cannes, and when and I was working with a major, well, a coming major movie star guy, you know, from New York, and we were in Cannes, and uh, and this is after Starsky and Hutch, and I was walking down the street with him, and all of the French people were falling all over themselves because Huggy Le Bon Trio, Huggy Bear, was walking that walking down, and you know, and on the red carpet and all that. And nobody recognized him. That was very disconcerting because the power of television connects you around the world because you, you know, you come into people's homes and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, you can do a film and not reach many people as one night. I always say you can, you can, um, do a Broadway play for 20 years, full houses, and not reach as many people of a syndicated show like Starsky and Hutch. And so that gives you an entree into people's in people's lives. And then if they enjoyed what you did, it just you know it's just a, a buttoning of relationship that you have with all these people that you've touched over the years. When I first asked you about busting, it felt like there was something you wanted to say but didn't. <laughs> uh, no, uh, you know when you <clears throat> when you try to flash back to to the memory of being on the set or being. I just remember being in that club and, you know, being around Elliot Gould, uh, um, just kind of in awe. But, you know, I'm, it's in awe almost after, after awe, you know, because when you're in there, you're just two guys going to war together. You know what I mean? You're, you're doing, you're on the field, you're playing the game together. You know, it's a metaphors of sports. When you go to war, you, you know, it doesn't matter who, who what. You know, you, you depend on each other. And so, 
uh, I always felt like, you know, like I belonged in the game, even though I felt like, you know, like I knew that, you know, I was new and I had to try harder or do, you know, or work extra hard or, or, you know, or be grateful for this opportunity to make a few bucks and to do something that I loved, you know, or that I had grown to need. So, um, you know, busting, you know, was just another one of those things. As I said, another stop on the block. You know, after uh, I'm going to get you, sucker, you worked with the Waynes Brothers quite a few times after that. What were they like to work with? Comic genius, the whole family, you know. They they came up from the same neighborhood. I lived in Chelsea, and they lived in Clinton. Was, uh, and the projects were down the, down, down, down the avenue from us. You know, I lived on 20, in the 20 called the Chelsea projects and they lived in the Clinton projects. So we kind of grew up in the same neighborhood and they came from a big family. I came from a big family. And the way we survived was getting into business. I got into the business. They got into comedy and, you know, became, uh, you know, uh, Keenan, you know, took the lead, uh, in terms of writing and, and then, you know, creating opportunities. And I remember when he called and said, you know, like he wanted me to do this film because, you know, uh, those guys, not that far removed, but they know whose shoulders they stand on. And they were able to identify people from the 70s movies that made an impact and, and put them in this wonderful tapestry. Go, I'm going to get you, sucker to be able to tell the story <laughs> and then, you know, and then starting living color. I mean, you know, putting, put, um, Fox on the map, so to speak. Um, so yeah. And then, the, you know, then the brothers continued and I worked with them and on the TV show. And then I did, uh, uh, the, the Wanda page with, uh, um, because I know you did that. Don't, 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 uh, don't drink your minutes drink juice right. in the hood. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yeah, those guys are, you know, those guys are really, really cool. And, you know, they have their place in history and they're still creating today. I love that metaphor that you gave about how when they play your music now, you come out and you join the parade. When you're not in the parade, what are you working on these days? Um, I work in the community. I live in Las Vegas and I work with young people uh, mentoring and you know, and, uh, you know, uh, teaching people, young people, the life skills through, like, like I had through the arts to be able to survive in a hostile world. Using the arts is a, is a wonderful, wonderful way to grow up, uh, a way to navigate. Uh, so, uh, so I do that and, uh, and I go around saying thank you a lot, you know, when people want to give me an award for, for the, my time in the business or, or, the honor of being interviewed like this, you know, uh, and just living life, you know, enjoying, 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 uh, enjoying the journey and, and sharing and sharing my strength, open experience, you know, um, putting away the shopping cart, you know, just being another bozo on the bus, you know, of life, you know, uh, humility, yeah, that's, you know, integrity, all the things that I never thought I could achieve because I'm so busy, you know, busy, busy, busy. And, uh, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I have a very, very full life. In fact, when I said that I was sort of semi-retired, I'm more busy in my semi-retirement than I've ever been, you know. And I also realized that it's been a spiritual journey. You only got what you were supposed to get. I was supposed to be doing this interview. This was written before we were, we were born, even. 
And so I relaxed about controlling my life and trying to engineer and waiting for the phone to ring and all that other stuff because it always did. I mean, here I am, 57 years in the business. What am I worried about? When you're working with these kids out there in, in, in Nevada, I mean, are they looking at you going, oh, my God, this is Huggy Bear? Do they recognize who you are? Yeah, but they also realize, it's like my kids. It's like my kids. You know, my my children, when, I was, when, when they were growing up, I was just another guy, you know? I, I like doing laundry. I like having fun. I like being a football dad. My son played in the NFL for seven years. I mean, I have another son. I just... He just produced a movie that I that I that I'm starring in or having a, a co-star role in, which is coming out called Beyond the Skyline. Um, but for these kids, you know, they and also they're very short on history, you know. So as my career is revealed to them, as they watch television, as they start to see the stuff that I've done, you know, unfortunately. And today, and you know, African American, as well as you know, other other society, other ethnic groups, we don't realize the shoulders that we stand on. They don't realize the shoulders, you know. But today, those references and you know those things that, so they just look at what are you, what are you, what are you bringing to the table? Do you have concern for me? Are you showing love? Uh, are you showing guidance? Are you being a, a good father? A good friend. Those are the things that they need today. They know, you know. They, I can't just say, "Well, do like I did," or you know what I mean. Or, you know, it's it's a matter of walking the walk and talking the talk. And so, I feel we have a, you know, I also work with an organization called the One Hundred Black Men of Las Vegas, and we, you know, we mentor. You know, we we share our experience. And one of the wonderful things that I've learned is that. We have to give people, family, friends, even the young people that I that I mentor, the dignity of failure. You know, because sometimes you have to make mistakes, but you also have to know that you're loved and that there's second chances in life, and that it's not the end. You know, we we live in a kind of fatalistic society. Well, if it doesn't happen, then I'm going to quit forever. You know what I mean? Or I'm not going to. You know, but to be able to know and to see and to share my struggle, the struggle that I went through in order to be Antonio, um, that could be helpful by saying, I have walked in your shoes. You know, I understand where you're coming from, but not to preach. And that's, it's a fine line. It's a fine line. Well, Mr. Fargus, thank you so much for your time today. This has been really an honor to talk to you. I've been a fan of yours for a long time. Well, you know, thank you. Thank you. I mean, this has uh, been a wonderful opportunity for me. You know, I, I love to be able to be consistent. You know, I'm more consistent today. You know, when I when I first started in the business, I used to, when I started, well, there was a time when I used to struggle to do interviews because it was hard to open up, you know. And, uh, you know, so I used to have sweat under my arms and, you know what I mean, all this stuff. But today I'm cool as a cucumber. <laughs> And I'm able to share this stuff because I'm not, you know, there's, there's less and less fear, you know, uh, you know, I'm not worried about the other shoe to drop or anything like that. I can tell it like it is. And that's, that's good stuff. And everybody benefits. I do, you know, so, so thank you. Thank you.
sharpens razor blades in from the street while the little people stare. It's all about the style and the clothes you wear. He's a fly guy. He's a fly guy. He's a fly guy. Ain't nothing about him sad. He's a fly guy. He's a fly guy. He don't even burn an eye. He's a fly guy. It's a fun film. It's such a. I, I think it's an amazing film. I'm really proud of it. You know, just just working on it was just it was a real buzz, and in so many ways, and uh, and the way it it came out and the way it's done, I don't know. I, I you know I got the script sent to me uh, by this woman Ruth Vitale, and I remember reading it and just thinking, oh my god, I just was laughing, but I also was just thinking in terms of you know here was uh, Keenan, you know who I didn't really know. Uh, I mean, I knew him as a personality. I'd seen Hollywood Shuffle. Yeah, I knew, you know, Robert. Uh, I didn't really know Robert Townsend, but I knew those guys had teamed up and done stuff and whatnot. And I knew it's, you know, I don't know if I'd ever seen any of his stand-up Keenan's at that point in time. But, uh, yeah, I just, I, I really liked the script. And I, I just, like, I thought it was funny. Uh, you know, obviously everyone says it's a, you know, it's a parody of black exploitation films, which it definitely is, but I saw it as so much more too. Um, and it was just, a, I also saw it as a black filmmaker, like Keenan, in some ways, I don't think he thinks of the film as being like a political film at all, but I did in a way, my films that always have a lot of political orientation to them, you know, whether it was Repo Man or Tape Heads or anything, and there was a lot of comedy. It was always kind of a social commentary, and I really felt that Keenan, um, you know, w- within the script and within the way it was going to be done, it was this social commentary about um, kind of, you know, making fun of a whole gang culture and 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 also taking the, exploit- the black exploitation thing uh, and sort of turning it on its head in so many ways too. Uh, but also kind of in the self revelatory sense of the film work, you know, like the you know, a scene where his sister Kim is dancing in a club and and, and I think Bernie goes, How did she ever get here? And and uh, the uh waitress goes, uh oh, yeah, she's the director's sister. You know, stuff like that. Uh that just you know, he just throws in that that's so self reflexive of the filmmaking process. And, and, you know, just the fact, too, it was like a, a pretty predominantly all-black cast at a time where, you know, there weren't, a, you know, except for like Hollywood Shuffle and, and Spike Lee and people like that, it, there weren't a lot of all-black cast. And I was just, I just read that and thought, wow, this is going to be cool and it's going to be funny. It's going to be, I thought it would be even more controversial than it was. I think in some ways it was. Some of the parodies in it struck people um, as a bit raw. Uh, you know, some of the gang stuff, making fun of it. But, I, man, I just thought it was really brilliant. And, uh, you know, when I read it and then I got to meet him and we got along. <laughs> I went to meet him, went to his house. And uh, he had just finished um, kind of doing, uh, redecorating on his house. Uh, and he had done all the work himself. I mean, he he's really a talented guy in a lot of ways. And he had done all this um kind of just refurbishing and rebuilding stuff. And it was just really nicely done. I mean, it wasn't a big house, um, but it was just 
you know, it was in L.A. on I forget what street it was off of. But it was just really, really cool how he did it. We kind of like sat down because I like stuff like that. I like working with my hands, too. And we just hit it off. And uh, it was just he was very real. Uh, and the persona, I didn't know how to really, is this guy, is he going to be, you know, like really funny or is he going to be, and he was just like a regular guy, you know, just, we could laugh, but also uh, he was just very straight about what he wanted to do and how he wanted to do it. And, you know, he hadn't really directed anything. He hadn't directed Hollywood Shuffle, I don't think. I think Robert had. And so this was a big jump up and he had kind of talked about, oh man, I've been trying to put this together and blah, blah, blah. And he had sent it to the the woman who sent it to me was at UA. They liked it and they liked him and they liked the idea of it, but they couldn't come together with a way to produce it. And that, you know, when she, she, when I went back in and said, Hey, I really like it. And she said, well, you know, the first budgets that were given to us were like $18 million. And I went, wow, uh, I don't really see it that way. Uh, I said, I almost feel that would wreck really a lot of what it's about. And, um, you know, it's a, it, there's a lot of action in it, but it's camp. It's all camp. And it's, you know, you can play at camp. And well, she said, well, go do a budget. And so I went home to my trusty Mac and, uh, I had an assistant, Eric Barrett, working with me then, and uh, who became a co-producer on the film. And, uh, you know, we sat down and started banging, you know, started looking more like a Repo Man model or, a, or you know, a, in that vein. And we did a budget for, you know, about two and a half to three million dollars. And when I showed it to the UA, they, they just went, what? No way. And I went, oh, yeah, definitely, definitely. Like 30 days shoot. And, you know, like in the script, it says, you know, like he's surrounded by 50 cop cars and your budget has 50 cop cars. You know, I, I just knocked off the zero and put five cop cars, you know, or when, Kung, you know, when Kung Fu Joe gets killed, you know, you have like, you know, three days of squibs and stuff. And I go, yeah, we don't, you know, we don't even see it. You know, we just come, you know, we don't even have to. And, you know, Keenan was cool with all that. He, I just said, you know, it's not going to be a payday for anybody and, but it'll get made if we do it this way. And he said, yeah, I just want to get it made. And we got a, a green light, you know, relatively fast after that. I mean, the other thing that's amazing about the film is, um, I mean, in, as I look back on it and even at that time, it's just a cast. I mean, the cast is, is, is just, incredible i mean every single role i mean just even small roles you know like like you know like you know the chris rock you know doing that you know i've had so many people you know how many people have done that rib scene for you it's it you know for me uh it's just amazing and so it, it was an amazing cast and then obviously to be anchored with keenan and then to have damon in it uh you know and kim was in it and obviously even marlon and sean were in it as like you know extras you know it was a real family affair too so uh it was it was it was very cool but you know just the fact that like you know bernie casey and and uh you know isaac hayes i mean these were people like i thought oh my yeah these were just you know, I mean, I, I knew Isaac Hayes' music better than I knew him as a, you know, I, you know, I teach Shaft and whatnot, but I just was so into his music. And uh, and Jim Brown, you know, I, I had been a, a big football fan, and I just was always totally enamored of Jim Brown. And that these guys were all in and just kind of dealing with them. You know, they're just, they are just so much who they are. They, there's no bullshit. 
it's really refreshing and you know they just this is what i want this is the deal this is how it goes and they were you know that's it, it was relative it went got put together relatively quick because people were just straight they wanted to be involved and and the other thing that, that I was just amazed at too is you know the reason we were able to you know keep on schedule I think we went a day or two over um, but not much and it and it wasn't you know it was just really to get more coverage and stuff um, you know is everybody was just so prepared and so professional and uh, you know just so into it and just no prima donnas at all. I mean, nobody, it was just, it was fun. It was really fun. And people were having a, a good time. And, you know, Keenan, like I say, anchored the whole thing. And the fact, I mean, I look at his, you know, I haven't really looked at the film in a while, but I mean, his performance was just, he could just take it just so into a funny place. And his you know, he wasn't afraid of anything. And here he was like, you know, acting, and you know, directing, and he'd say to me, like, you know, Sam, like, get the camera, what do you, you know, and we were doing video playback, so we got to see some, you know, but it was fun working that close with him in that capacity, um, you know, him, you know, just letting him just go for stuff, and you're just laughing. The hardest thing that on that set sometimes was not to laugh during takes, uh, because he was just, you know, his comedic timing was just so funny. And then his facial expression, you know, so he wasn't afraid to just go for it. And, um, and it's just, you know, it's, it's interesting. I, I was, when you told me we we're going to do this, I like picked up an old uh, publicity kit and I started reading it. Um, and I had my office and a file in my office and, uh, man, that film is just so packed with stuff. It, you know, just so many gags and so many people and so much stuff. I mean, it's just one after another, you know, you know, from midgets under the hats to, you know, um, uh, you know, the, the, what's her name? Um, Oh God, I'm forgetting her name now. Uh, taking her, her leg off, um, uh, Rosemary. Yeah. Uh, you know, like doing that whole, just all these gags that just are unrelenting and, uh, you know, and just people in it, you know, like, like small roles. There again, I, I, we said Chris Rock, but like David Aaron, David Allen Greer is, was, it was like a news person in it. And he just, there again, he just it was a funny scene. Every scene was just boom, boom, boom. So, um, it was, it was really fun to do. I mean, it, it one of the interesting things about making it, as I was thinking back, you know, since your call was, you know, we, we were sending, you know, because it was so low budget and it was not, you know, we weren't like a big union shoot or anything. We were doing things real down and dirty. And, um, as you can see by a lot of the locations, you know, the studio UA was like, kind of like, you know, we don't know, you know, we're just going to let these guys go. And as long as they don't, you know, as long as this train doesn't derail, we're going to let them, you know, whatever. We just want to look at dailies and I'd send dailies. And a lot of times they would, I'd get called like, you know, are these people, what, what's going on? This acting, it's so over the top or it's so this or it's so that. And they, they, they didn't, you know, watching in dailies was very, I think, difficult for them sometimes. But I just think that, trust me, trust me, it's, it's going to be really funny. Uh, and, you know, and it's going to move fast. It's going to be, you know, like a 90 minute film. So, which I think it's, I think it turned out 89 minutes. Um, yeah. I mean, it's just, you know, like there another self-reflexive thing I just thought of is, is there's a scene where Jeanne Dubois, the mom saves Jack at a, like at a diner. 
And she comes in, she comes in and she goes, you know, take mics and get your hands off of my son or something. And then she kind of turns around and does a somersault going backwards and up to two of Mr. Big's guys. You see that it's a white guy doing a somersault with a black wig on. And then the, then she she hits the ground, she turns around and it's her. And then it goes, she throws a punch and it's the white guy with the black wig. And then the guy, you know, and then the guy knocks out one of the bad guys uh, with his, uh, I forget his name, John uh, Vernon was one of them. Uh, he was the real big guy. And oh, he, the little guy, and then he knocks out the, the big guy, John Vernon, and then he throws him, you know, over the bar. Uh, and he's, you know, and he's basically a white guy with a black wig doing the whole time. And then he, then when he turns, when it cuts back, it cuts to Jack reacting, cuts back and it's Junaid Dubois standing at the bar as though she's just on the guy. So what it was is, and I it thought, I thought, God, this is like, this is so radical to be doing this. And, and what it was about was that, you know, in, in Hollywood, there just weren't, black stunt people and you know the, the 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 union that did you know that did all the stunts was predominantly a white union and so in the black exploitation films especially 20 years ago they would use you know white guys and they i don't know if they put them in they i guess they might put them in blackface but they you know white guys wearing like black wigs and sideburns and whatnot um to do the stunts for black guys and so we just said well we'll just have a white guy we're not even gonna you know we're not gonna make it make it up or just there again it's another self-reflexive moment that's in a very funny film that i don't know if a lot of people even pick it up it's really about the history of, of black filmmaking and the, the kind of, you know, the exclusion of certain crafts to uh, minorities. And it, it just, you know, there was a lot in that movie uh, and it was on the written page too, that Keenan was kind of commenting on. And in some ways I almost say commenting on like a Woody Allen comments on, on, you know, on Jewish culture sometimes, you know, kind of scathingly, but with a lot of love and endearingness too. So I, I, yeah, it was really an honor to work with him and to be involved with it. Uh, I mean, it was, you know, like any small film, it was, it was super hard, but it was, you know, the guy is such a talent and he's easy going. I mean, he's just very easy going for being all under the pressure of writing, starring and directing. He just never was, you know, difficult. And, and I mean, the only times he was ever demanding is when he wanted things or when he didn't want things, you know, there were things, you know, we did, you know, there was a lot of times stuff would come out that would be kind of extraneous. And he, and we thought he, at one point he thought, you know what, I, I, you know, could Peter, could you get John Cusack to be one of the bad guys and uh, in the big ending shootout? And I said, yeah, you know, I, I think I could. And I'll call him. I mean, you know, he knows what, about this film. I've been talking to him about it, and he knows how excited I am. And, you know, we had done tape it together, and we're pretty good buddies at the time and hanging out. And uh, he said, yeah, I'll do it. I'll just do it. And he goes, you know, I don't want credit or anything, but I'll come in and do it. And he goes, but if I do it, I really want to, you know, like I want to be in a shock where I just get blown to pieces. And I go, well, John, you know, we're really, it's not really that kind of film, but, if, if, uh, you know, we don't have like, you know, it's not going to be all kinds of special effects, but tell you what, we'll get us, I guess, good guy and we'll put some scripts on you. So, so at least you'll look like you get shot. And he goes, yeah, yeah. Okay, great. So he comes one day and he's in the scene. It's one of the scenes of the last warehouse where there's the big gun battle. 
and uh, he is basically uh, he he basically wants to not be a bad guy. He says, I, "Let me be a UPS guy." And it's like, I'm a UPS guy who just comes up off the elevator and just walks into the whole thing. And everybody look and he, and he goes, oh, UPS is, is, is somebody here. I don't know if he says Mr. Big or something. And then all the good guys and the bad guys all turn and shoot him. And so, uh, and so Cusack goes, yeah. So he goes, like, yeah, if they're going to do that, I want like 30 squids on me. And I'm like, man, 30 squids on each one of these things kind of explodes. And, you know, you could you get a little powder buried. And he goes, no, no, I just want to fly to pieces. And so we do. And sure enough, we do the scene. You know, he comes up as a UPS man. <laughs> the, the, the elevator doors, these big uh, uh, freight doors open. Uh, he steps out and goes, hello, hello, right in the middle of a big gun battle. Uh, it's uh, UPS, and then everybody looks at him and just turns and opens fire and, and blows him away. Like 30 squids go out and he kind of burns his arm, he burns his leg for all this. But he gets blown back into the elevator, doors closed. Boom. So Keenan, I go, oh my God, that was unbelievable. You know, we got John Cusack in the film, we got to see where he gets blown away. It's, it's amazing. And uh, in the cutting room later on, like, you know, Keenan goes, you know, Pete, it, it, it slows down the action. It slows down the action of the thing right there. And it kind of just distracts from everything. And I go, and I'm like, no, no, I, I can't tell you how many chips I threw down to get that, Keenan. And he's like, yeah, well, uh, we don't need it. And he was right. It was, he was absolutely right. But it's like that kind of stuff. You know, where once in a kind of like, oh, you know, he, he said, let's try something and, you know, and it didn't end up uh, getting in the film. But he was a sweet, he was always a really sweet guy to work with, you know, and, but he had very strong ideas of how to make the film, how he wanted to make it. And uh, you know, another thing we had that he nixed was that Curtis Mayfield did a score for the film. And so Eric Barrett, my assistant, went out to Curtis's studio in Atlanta, I think it was, and stayed there for a, like a couple of weeks. And Curtis did a score for the film. And it was, it was very retro sounding. It was very cool, but it was very retro. And there, there is a lot of incidental music in the film, I mean, a ton of incidental music. And then when Aristar came on, uh, you know, with the record deal, I mean, we, we end up putting a lot of Arista artists in there too. So, uh, so the score was really getting just pinched. And at one point, Keenan just, we, you know, he looked at it and screamed, just said, we're losing it. We don't, you know, it's just, it's not fitting anymore. And I'm like, Oh man, do you know what it took to get that Curtis Mayfield score? And, uh, uh, you know, and, you know, Curtis Mayfield is a, you know, he's such a genius and, such an amazing person. And, you know, this was after his injury. And, uh, so, you know, for him to do something like that was a big effort. And, uh, so it was just, it just another one of those things, but he was absolutely right. It would have, the film is so dense right now with music and with theme music for everybody. And just, you know, so much incidental stuff that, uh, it just would have been, uh, it, you know, it would have been too dense. It almost would have, you know, been those kind of scores where you just go stop already, you know? So, it, you know, that's just uh, those kind of things happen. But, you know, the film turned out. Um, it's a really funny film. I think it has held up 
pretty. I, I think I saw it on cable like a year or two ago, and I actually was just laughing and enjoying it a lot. So and it happened, happened a long time. How did they manage to get you in there as Weasel? Basically, that was in the same the, – that's in the scene where they rescue uh, Cheryl. Uh, there was a bunch of guys coming through the door, and uh, Damon is shooting people. So, um, and I thought, oh, let me be, we, you know, if they're again, they needed somebody to get shot. And it was a death scene. They're again, another one of these improv things. And Keenan says, and I've done different acting, you know, Sid and Nancy, I, I played Duke Bears and uh, other tape heads I played, I'm a Nudo fan. And that was one line. But, but the Sid and Nancy was a fairly big role. And other stuff I'd played. I, and, you know, I'd taken acting. I, initially, when I went out to L.A., I, I studied acting for a while. But I didn't really have the, the talent, let's put it that way, to be a really good actor. And uh, I didn't have the reservoir of emotional strength that it took. I, I get too emotional and also too nervous. You know, I had done things, though, and I'd been in a number of films, maybe maybe a half dozen different films. So, you know, he, he had me read and he goes to do a death scene. I did a, and so I go in and, and, and it just, and I break in and Janae Dubois is like tied up to the chair and he shoots me and I fall down and, and, da- and Damon comes over and I, and I go, mom that I love her and I die. And then he goes, oh, all right, I'm supposed to tell us about they love her. And then I tug his dad. I go, and he goes down and he goes, what? And he shoots me again. You know, and and I and I and as it hits me again, I go, I put the eye contact him again. I go, you know, tell my g- g- girlfriend that I love her. As you can tell by my acting, I'm not very good. That I love her, and and so this goes on, and I start going down. You know, I'm like, tell my girlfriend, <laughs> tell my dog. You know, this goes on like like four. You know, tell my gerbil, and it's going down and down. Each time he he you know he's going what, and it, and 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 finally just like empties like five shots into me and I died. But there again, it's another one. He sees like he looked at him and went like, Peter, this is the whole movie. You know, this is like just talk about this is like the film comes to because there's standstill here. And I'm like, yeah, I know. So that I think I just said run through the door and get shot now and the whole that's it. I fall to the ground. I don't know if you even see my face. It's uh, it's probably just my back. But I do have a picture of me with, with Damon. I am all shot up and wearing gold chains. And I have it somewhere that, uh, in, my, in my database. So it, it was fun. And Damon was a trip, too. You know, Damon and Kadeem, what a team those two guys were. And they could have started a stand-up routine themselves. Uh, just so funny and played off of each other so effortlessly. That, um, you know, and that whole running gag, you know, you want to take the window or the stairs, just stuff like that. I mean, just, it, you know, it almost becomes, you know, the, the fact that you can do a running gag in this kind of film and have it work so well um, is is just, it's, you know, where, where people, you know, like, are going to take the stairs. And it's just it's funny. And then and then him getting more and more broken up, you know, his, his broken leg and broken, ne- you know, his neck's in a brace. It's, you know, every time you see it, you just laugh. Yeah, it's just great visual humor, great physical humor, just all around, uh, amazingly done for, uh, as a first film by Keenan, by someone who's also written and directed, and, and, and you know was the writer and is directing at the same time. 
So um, he had a great vision, and I think he had honed it with, you know, like Eddie Murphy and Robert, and, you know, I think they had thrown around ideas, and he knew his subject. And there again, I think you talk to him, he'd say, well, it was initially a parody of black exploitation film, but it kind of transcended that because of the great cast and the acting and the characters and whatnot. And I, I totally agree that uh, that in some ways it's like a black exploitation film because of the small budget and the, some of the ways it's done. And uh, but it's it's just it's really uh, you know it's really a comedy and a satire too, and and making fun of some of the of things that usually are taken so seriously. You know, like OG. You know, you're just over gold. You know, it's the funny idea just the whole idea of that is just so bizarre and so clever i'm curious you've got so many luminaries of the black exploitation era and i have to say i love steve james but did you go for jim kelly at that point did you go for fred the hammer williamson i'm trying to think i, I think steve james was somewhat there was kind of like an idea of people right from the start and um you know, and i think part of it was their accessibility um, I don't, you know, uh, Robbie Reed and, um, and Jackie, I'm forgetting Jackie's uh, other last name now, the casting directors, um, you know, we're, we're really up on it. And, you know, I don't, I think that a lot of, we, we, you know, if we found someone that fit the bill, so to speak, um, we kind of like went with that person. I mean, it's kind of like with, with, with Bernie Casey or with Jim Brown or, or, you know, with, I mean, the minute though, I mean, we kind of went to those people knowing, you know, hammer and slammer. It was like, boom, we know who it's going to be. And I think Keenan definitely had people in mind that he wanted to work with. And I, I don't know if, you know, I don't, you know, I don't think he really knew the people a lot in advance, but, uh, um, he, you know, he just, he basically, you know, his, he had ideas for folks and, and he, you know, was kind of like go and try to get them. So it, you know, I don't remember, you know, I remember watching, you know, getting videos of, of a lot of black exploitation films and watching, watching him with the cinematographer, Tom Richmond. I, I don't, I don't know if there was a lot of debate over people, if they fit the bill, so to speak. And I know that you had just worked with uh, Clue Gulliger on tape heads. Did you kind of bring him to the party when it came to uh, Sucka? I think that I, you know, he was somebody I definitely liked a lot in tape heads and he had done a great job and we had become very friendly. And um, I'm sure I probably might, you know, threw his hat into the ring with, you know, the casting ideas. You know, but it, I, there again, it wasn't a, I don't, I think that, uh, you know, and the fact that he wanted to do it was, you know, for, because this, I don't think we were paying a whole lot to people and it was, you know, and Clue just liked the idea that I don't know if it was like, oh, this is definitely going to be Clue, but I, I'd probably mention them. Sure. You know, just like I say, like with Cusack, I probably, we talked about that, you know, about the idea of a UPS man coming in and interrupting everything. And it hadn't been in the script. I've said, Oh, and I was just amazed he wanted to do it. So, um, there again, clue, you know, I, I got to know him more and more and, um, yeah, he's really, he's, he's remarkable. He's a remarkable actor. And he's also, he does a lot of stuff. I mean, he's, he, you know, he teaches acting too. And, you know, his sons are filmmakers. I got to know them pretty well. And, you know, he's just really a, a, 
uh, a unique character. You've talked about a lot of stuff that you guys kind of shot, maybe, you know, hopefully not knowing that it was going to be cut, but there's always that crafting in the editing room. Do you remember anything else that was shot that didn't make the final product? I did second unit in the editing. I don't get, I'm not credited on it. Usually if I take, um, you know, get a credit as a producer, I don't take other credits. It'd be an acting credit. And so, you know, I did like set five days of second unit shooting from the, you know, it was kind of like uh, um, Mike Miller, the editor said, um, yeah, that there was a lot of stuff that had to be done um, to kind of make some things work. And so, you know, I went out and you know, put together a small crew and Keenan wasn't all that interested in it. He was really busy um, doing some other stuff and, you know, obviously wanted to get the film done. And so, you know, there's just a ton of little things. I mean, just even like when they're, when they're shooting up with the guns or, you know, when a lot of the action things, a lot of the action shots, um, I went out and did, like, I even think I got like, you know, one of the things I did second unit was like Bernie Casey rappelling off the building and going through the window. Um, you know, just stuff like that, that, um, I, we had him going through the window. We didn't have him on the roof. We didn't have stuff like that. So it was a matter of doing, uh, going out and doing those pieces. And I had done that before. I mean, I, there was a, you know, one of the things I did right after Repo Man was a, a film called Prison Planet, where, uh, believe it or not, the same woman, Ruth Vitale, had called me in and said, boy, we have a film that's out of control. And, you know, it, all, you know, and we, it's like, um, the production's out of control and they're not really, it's over budget. We're going to shut it down and we, we're going to get screwed by the completion bond company. And Peter, can you help us? And I went in and um, saw that, you know, got them to kind of got the, you know, they ran out of the money and finished what they had and they turned in a cut and it was like 50 minutes long. And so I put together a second unit and shot for like two weeks. And I'm not saying this is a good film by any stretch of imagination, but they were able to release it. And I mean, they must have done okay because about a year later, they sent me a contract, you know, wanting me to be an executive producer, not a, a director, because they would have had to pay me royalties or something. So, um, so I think they broke even in there again was for Vestron, you know, the dirty dancing company. So they were, they, they had a real machine for how to get this stuff out on video, even if it was fairly mediocre, but I was able to finish it. And then I, you know, I was fairly good at doing second unit stuff and, and bringing stuff in cheap and making it fit into the film. So I did that on, um, with about five days of, of reshoots, or, but not really reshoots, just pickups. And I don't think I even brought in any of the key cast people. It was a lot of, you know, hands and bullets and running and, you know, just different stuff like that. I think I brought in some of the uh, uh, bad guys to get falling or going over things. But, you know, I don't forget the whole shooting schedule, but it was quite a few days. So, you know, that stuff was to put it together. Other stuff that didn't get in the film, um, I, you know, I don't, remember a whole lot of other things i mean obviously the in any film the first cuts uh play longer and this played you know somewhat longer but not i mean my god when i look at a film like tapeheads you know our first cut was three and a half hours long i mean we cut out we almost cut out whole characters and subplots and i mean um, I mean, it's amazing the amount of stuff we cut out. And there again, it's not like really losing scenes. It's just like truncating them in such a way 
um, that, that, you know, or losing kind of, um, subplots just don't let them play as long. But, uh, I'm trying to think if there was any, you know, the thing about it was so lighthearted. And I think that some of the scenes might've got like with, um, uh, like cherry and stuff like that, any kind of stuff that would get too sexual, you know, like when he makes out with Jenny Dubois, we might've had more, you know, kissing and more stuff going on, you know, making it a little hotter, but, um, that's really not what the film was about. And so it, none of that stuff was, was necessary, it, you know, and I don't think there was a lot of it anyway, but no, I don't, you know, I don't remember a, a lot. You know, the film was like, it, it got put together. You know, Mike Miller was an amazing, um, editor. I mean, he'd done like raising Arizona worked with the Cone brothers and, and, you know, he was really good and really fast. Uh, because the film was shot in, I believe, June, and it was released in December. So we were cooking. And plus it had a big sound, you know, we had to get a soundtrack out, and there was a lot of music, and the music in it was, expen- you know, for me, it was the most expensive music I'd ever dealt with. So, you know, even having done the soundtrack for Sid and Nancy, this soundtrack was like, whoa, you know, this was like, the fees we're paying um, for music was a lot more than, yeah, I mean, it probably was in the the range of like $200,000. And that was just, you know, I mean, Repo Man was like 25,000, you know, Sid and Nancy was like maybe under a hundred, you know? And so um, this was a big budget and it was like with Arista and with his name, head of Claude Davis, the head of Arista. So he was putting in, you know, some cuts with people who, um, you know, the Gap Band or, you know, Four Tops and Aretha Franklin. I mean, these are major people, Jennifer Holiday. And so, you know, buying the rights to the stuff of the pre-recorded stuff was pretty expensive. I mean, not, you know, not by, you know, we weren't paying like big, big film prices, but, uh, you know, we were paying, it was, it cost money to do it. Um, probably our cheapest song was, uh, you know, KRS One, Jack of Spades, because uh, he, we, he also did a version of uh, I'm Gonna Get You Something. So, and that's an interesting aside from the film is that after, you know, I became pretty good friends with KRS One during the film. And I really kind of pushed to get him in the film. And uh, uh, and then afterwards, I ended up directing two, uh, writing and directing two music videos for him. So, um, which was kind of neat. You know, it was like, uh, um, You Must Learn was one. And um, I think the other one was edutainment. You know, that was a cool, you know, kind of a cool after, um, um, you know, uh, relationship that developed during the film. So, uh, which I which I was really happy to do. Short, cause one. 
All right, we are back, and we're talking about I'm going to get you, sucker. Um, so I talked a lot about the changes to the uh, the screenplay, um, so I don't really need to go through that. I, I did find it funny that at one point he actually, he being Keenan Ivory Wayans, actually did screw up, and there's a, a mistake in the screenplay because he refers to Hammer and Slammer at one point as Hammer and Slaughter and then quickly changes it. It's only mentioned once in the screenplay, but I was like, oh, that's kind of yeah. nice. Rather than it being KRS-One in the script, this is really kind of showing how fast tastes can change. When he wrote the script, and it doesn't have a name, uh, a date on it, unfortunately, when Keenan Ivor Wayans wrote the script, it was Run DMC showed up at one point as his backup band rather than oh, KRS-One. Nice. Okay. Yeah. And I have to say, though, by 88, KRS-One was yeah. a smarter choice than Run DMC. Um, not to say that they were kind of out of the running. I mean, Walk This Way was still all over the place, but this was kind of more the emerging style and face of hip-hop. And to even use, like, uh, Canine Posse in there, I thought was really nice. Yeah, I mean, it, it kind of shows, you know, I mean, that may be part of the thing that that, you know, has the film stuck in amber of like 1988, but it also kind of reflects like what hip hop was at the time. And, uh, you know, this is, this is an interesting time for hip hop because it was, it was, you know, mainstream, but not as mainstream as it would become just a few years later. Right. Well, and it's nice too. We're talking about this whole mix of old and new. And I mentioned earlier that it's Curtis Mayfield with Fishbone. So it's this kind of marriage between Superfly and what Fishbone was doing at the time. If memory serves, this was, I remember buying tickets for Lollapalooza one the same night that another friend of mine was waiting in line to buy tickets for a Fishbone concert. So they were, they were not, they were definitely playing different venues, but they were still a very viable band in 1990. I think that was. So yeah. Yeah. There were, were, I mean, their, their stuff was on 120 minutes at that, at that time a lot, man. I loved that video for Pretty at Ground Zero. Absolutely. And the part, the video for yeah, the Wonderful yeah. Life was fantastic as well. Skanking to the beat, uh, which I think was on the Say Anything soundtrack. Oh wow, good pull. Yeah, I think that's actually the B side to uh to In Your Eyes for the cassette single when they re released oh, wow. it for Say Anything because I had that and I would and I enjoyed Skanking to the beat more than In Your Eyes. So. Wow, bringing back cassette singles there. Very yeah, nice. uh, for those listening at home, I'm old. Yes, hello. <laughs> I had the Fishbone Fly Guy song on a 45, so that dates me. <laughs> I can't remember what the B-side was for that one, but I just remember buying that because it had the picture of Antonio Fargus coming out of a prison with that hat and with those shoes. That's wonderful. And, oh, yeah. And, you know, they're seven inches. They're not 12 inches or anything. So it was just like this nice little picture. And then you got the, the I bought it more for the picture than for the song, but the song's great. That's too. great. Yeah. You'll, you'll have to like find an image of that and put it up on the website with this episode. So everyone can see that. So yeah, hammer slammer and Slade. We talked a little bit about that before that it was uh, pretty much a failed pilot. Um, I don't know it's kind of neat because in the episode they're trying to get, um, they're trying to get hammer out of the house because the Jeanette Dubois character, um, is really the shrewish wife and doesn't want him hanging around with his old hoodlum friends. And they finally get him away and he keeps making phone calls like, Oh yeah, we're at the movies and Oh yeah, we're, we're 
playing baseball now or any all, all these kind of excuses and at the very end it's this whole like okay we're done now and they're like oh come on we gotta do it one more time and it's like that's kind of where they end and i'm just like oh they never did yeah. but i kind of wish they had yeah i liked hammer slammer and slade better than i liked like posse and it had a little bit more humor to it um you know, I'm, I mean, I liked I liked some of the later black exploitation reunion films. I mentioned uh, old school gangsters before. There were some good moments to that, but it's not one of those that I go back to. I definitely go back to the originals yeah. uh, far more than I do any of that stuff. Sure, yeah, and of, and of course, black shampoo, which <laughs> which I, I you have my eternal thank uh, thanks for turning me on to because that movie is just amazing. Yeah. The the one thing about Posse that I absolutely loved was that movie had Paul Bartel and Isaac Hayes in it, and if you look at them, they're almost carbon copies of one another. Right. Oh, wow. Especially at that point in their career when they were both a little bit more rotund. It was just like, wow. I mean, they they could almost stand facing one another, and then like their souls would swap, and you'd be like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. I would see that movie. (laughs) I would see a movie about a body-swapping Paul Bartel. I would I would absolutely see that movie. They're both holding that idol from uh, like Father Like oh Son. Oh my god. That would be amazing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then if if Isaac Hayes spoke with Paul Bartel's voice and vice versa. Oh my god. Oh man, cuz those two have like two of the most uh respected voices to me. Yeah. Oh man. Now I want to see this movie. <laughs> Great. Thanks. Well, Chris, what is keeping you busy these days? I hear you got some good news coming up about the uh, New York Comic Con. Yeah, I'm going to be uh, I'm going to be doing, doing two events at New York Comic Con. One is the uh, Doctor Who costume and trivia contest, which is the fourth year I'll be doing that. Uh, that's going to be at the Way Station. Just check NewYorkComicCon.com for uh, tickets and full date scheduled because the date is 100% as of this recording. But a date that is 100% is uh, Friday, October 8th. And this is going to be an event called Music Video Book Club in which myself and a uh, panel of comedians uh, are going to be analyzing music videos. The uh, book club aspect of this is they will know five of the videos beforehand and have time to prepare detailed ideas about these music videos i'll be showing and they won't know five of the other ones so it'll be kind of like you know spanning all era of music video uh a lot of fun just kind of goofing on music videos for two hours so i'm i'm looking forward to that and uh as usual you can find me uh on the internet at uh bionic bigfoot and sci-fi explosion and i regularly write for uh denageek.com now knowing that none of your panelists will be listening to this show can you give me a hint about at least one of the music videos yes uh i will be showing benny mardona's legendary into the night that is uh that is one that i will be absolutely showing um because it is one of the creepiest songs ever recorded and uh yeah it's it's terrible and then we'll be showing weird obscurities like uh there's there's a, a very good like kind of late disco pop song called upside down by this uh recording artist named Vanessa i'm not even sure exactly where she's from but the video is her and it's it's kind of like the much, much sleazier version of Olivia Newton-John's physical. Uh, yeah, so it's a, it's, it's a crazy, crazy video. Um, yeah, so a lot of stuff like that uh, is going to be, you know, stuff that's known, stuff that's obscure. There's going to be a lengthy discussion about Kate Push's hair in the cloud-busting video, you know, that sort of thing. 
Oh my god, yeah. yeah. I'm sure that you could talk for hours on that oh one. Oh my, yeah, yeah. It's it's going to be, I'm going to have to limit myself on that one for sure. Because I have opinions. And that's good. Donald Sutherland, I mean, that's a little little film. Like, Terry Gilliam did some work on that. Yeah, that's a... And that is based in historical legend. I'm trying to remember what that is. Yeah, the uh, it was the um oh god uh, I forget the guy's name, but yeah, it's it's the guy who thought he you could uh, you could harness the sexual energy called Oregon Oregon. Oh, okay. And w- William that. Wright. William Wright. Yeah. All right. I remember we talked about that when uh, we covered WR Mysteries of the Organism on this uh, show. Yeah. There is a music video that you need to check out. It's called Little Girls, How to Pick Up Girls. Jesus. This, I am going to be sending you this. That's a, that because, sounds like it may get me on some lists. I don't, uh, I don't know if I need this, that. <laughs> this video, it might change your life. It might. Jesus Christ. I, I'm just letting you know that now. I mean, even seeing like the Chiron at the beginning of this just really tells me um, the quality of it. Oh, my God. It sounds horrifying. Yeah. yeah. So I might play out with that song. I'm not sure. Jesus. But, uh, yeah, there's got to be an excuse to play that sometime. Oh, my God. Well, thank you, Chris, for coming on the show. Thank you to everybody for listening. Be sure to head on over to the website, projection-booth.com, where you can leave us feedback. You can also find links to iTunes, where you can rate and review the show. Rate and review the show. You can also find a link over to Patreon, where you can make a donation. Uh, patrons get early access to every episode, as long as I'm not running late. Every rating, every review, and every donation we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world. Take a look at me, come on, do you like what you see, wanna be with me? Racky brains for the right line, two crystal glasses by love, white wine, you know you glass when you find that I've left the club with some other guy. If you wanna do more than look, you'll have to read the book. Gotta pick up girls.
1972, a crack commando unit was sent to prison by a military court for a crime they didn't commit. These men promptly escaped from a maximum security stockade to the Los Angeles underground. Today, still wanted by the government, they survive as soldiers of fortune. This beat is military. Yeah, it's You're dope and it dope, folks. One thing you should never forget. This is my command, folks. Stand and watch forever and ever. Suckers taking me, I will be clever. But never, I'm rolling a head crack. So pay me what's due. Yeah, I know you wrote C Long. But I ain't paying you. Boast the jam, damn. Like I was Frazier and Captain KO's. But the damage I do is major. Military, hardcore, very cold. Strike to the air. The plan of lyrical warfare. Leave suckers in the place. Don't get none. You're going in war. Drive a brick for fun. Prisoner. A war of these. Yeah. 
jam. What's that? A weak cut? What? In your wall locker? I'm writing you up, so just laugh. And joke like it's bull, but like a tow truck, I got pulled. Moving the crowd like it should be a massive. My regime, absolutely badass. If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.